Inanna placed the crown of the step on her head. She went to the sheepfold, to the shepherd. She leaned back against the apple tree. When she leaned against the apple tree, her vulva was wondrous to behold. Rejoicing at her wondrous vulva, the young woman, Inanna, applauded herself. <laughs> That's so good. Right? Such a good line of poetry. <laughs> What is this episode about? Well, it's about something completely different. It's just, that's just how it starts. Getting naked in an orchard. <laughs> well, it'll be thematically relevant soon. Okay. You're listening to The Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Near East. I'm your host, Alex, and I'm here with my guests. Kira. Victoria. And we're reading Inanna and the God of Wisdom from the book Inanna, Queen of Heaven and Earth by Diane Wolkstein and Samuel Noah Kramer. Wolkstein is a modern storyteller. And she fills in the gaps in the text interpretively, whereas Samuel Noah Kramer was a prominent Sumerologist. Inanna is the patron goddess of the city of Unug, or Uruk. She is the god of war, statecraft, and sexual love. Inanna said, I, the queen of heaven, shall visit the god of wisdom. I shall go to the Abzu, the sacred place in Eridu. I shall honor Enki, the god of wisdom, in Eridu. I shall utter a prayer to Enki at the deep, sweet waters. So Enki is the god of Eridu, as well as wisdom, crafts, and fresh water. Eridu is the oldest city in the Sumerian tradition, and as we'll see, it's one of the oldest archaeological sites in southern Mesopotamia. So Inanna sets out to receive the May from Enki. The May are the holy laws of heaven and earth. You know, like abstract concepts, except in the story, there are things that could be picked up and moved. Wait, so are they divine laws, or are they just like. They're just. They seem like concepts. they're like. But can only one person have them? Like, does it really matter who has them if they're like laws of the universe? He's the god of these things, and he's causing her to become the god of these things. Mm. By giving her these gifts when he's drunk. He, like, bestows powers. Yeah. But, like, enjoying other people's company is a thing that you can just have in your hand? No, yeah, yeah, So it starts off with, like, the art of power, the plundering of cities. The plundering of cities is one of the great things that our societies have given us. Wow. <laughs> it's, like, one of the celebrated features. Right. So, when Inanna arrives, she's greeted by Enki's servant. When Inanna entered the Abzu, he gave her butter cake to eat. He poured cold water for her to drink. He offered her beer before the statue of the lion. He greeted Inanna at the holy table, the table of heaven. Enki and Inanna drank beer together. They drank more and more beer together. When their bronze vessels filled to overflowing, with the vessels of Urash, mother of the earth, they toasted each other, they challenged each other. Enki, swaying with drink, toasted Inanna, In the name of my power, in the name of my holy shrine, to my daughter Inanna I shall give the high priesthood, godship, the noble enduring crown, the throne of kingship. Inanna replied, I shall take them. Or I guess we're like, I shall take them. Inanna, 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 Inanna. Have you ever noticed how my name is like kind of the same thing twice? Like, Inanna, So these are the first four May. The next five are, quote, Truth, descent into the underworld. Ascend from the underworld. The art of lovemaking. The kissing of the phallus. The kissing of the phallus. I don't know, every good thing about civilization. That's all of them right there. Blundering and salatio. <laughs> he sounds like a terrible god if he's just like, oh, I'm drunk. Here, have this stuff. <laughs> well, we'll see how that works out. casual. Some other maze include the paraphernalia of statehood, including, quote, the noble scepter, staff, holy measuring rod and line, the art of power, the plundering of cities, forthright speech, slanderous speech, adorning speech, the art of straightforwardness and deceit. 
We also see crafts like carpentry, metalworking, working as a scribe, etc. So Inanna bids Enki farewell, and he drunkenly wishes her a safe journey. So she gathers up all the may on her boat and sails home. So Enki wakes up hungover. When the beer had gone out from the great god of wisdom, Enki looked about at the Abzu. King Enki looked about Eridu and called to his servant, Isimud, saying, The high priesthood, godship, the noble enduring crown, where are they? His servant replied, My king has given them to his daughter. He lists several other may. His servant keeps replying, My king has given them to his daughter. So Enki regrets giving them all away. So he sends his servant, Isimut, to intercept Inanna's boat and tells him to take Enkum creatures with him. So the servant catches up with Inanna and speaks, My king has said, Let Inanna proceed to Unug. Bring the boat of heaven with the holy may back to Eridu. Inanna cried, My father has changed his word to me. He has violated his pledge, broken his promise. Deceitfully, my father spoke to me. Scarcely had Inanna spoken these words when the wild-haired Enkum creature seized the boat of heaven. Inanna called to her servant, Ninshubur, saying, Come, Ninshubur. Once you were queen of the east. Now you are the faithful servant of the holy shrine of Unug, my warrior who fights by my side. Save the boat of heaven with the holy may. So Ninshubur is interesting. She is the kind of servant or vizier of Inanna. But her name means Lady of Shubur, which is the Sumerian name for kind of northern Mesopotamia. Hmm. So her name is Lady of the North, but there's also this line, once you were queen of the East, which I don't know where that comes from, but it's interesting. Well, I mean, that there's no like prequel to Ninshubur. Like, was she once royalty or? Well, we don't know. No, okay. She, she always shows up as Inanna's vizier, I guess. We don't have any earlier myths about her. By the time these myths took final form in the 21st century BC, you know, she was already part of the pantheon as Inanna's servant. Ninshubur defeats the Enkum creatures. Enki calls Isimud again and tells him to send 50 Uru giants. Ninshubur defends Inanna's boat a second time. So Enki sends 50 Lahama sea monsters, then the sound-piercing Kugalgal, then the Enunun, then the watchman of the Iturungal canal. But Ninshubur defeats them all in turn. So Inanna arrives in Unug, her hometown, to great celebration. As the May which Inanna had received from Enki were unloaded, they were announced and presented to the people of Sumer. Then more May appeared. More may than Enki had given Inanna, and these two were presented to the people of Unug. She brought allure. She brought the art of women. She brought the perfect execution of the may. Cool. What is that? That seems like self-referential. Well, yeah, the art of being good at the art of other stuff. Then Enki spoke to Inanna, saying, In the name of my power, in the name of my holy shrine, let the may you have taken with you remain in the holy shrine of your city. Let the citizens of your city prosper. Let the children of Unug rejoice. The people of Unug are allies to the people of Eridu. Let the city of Unug be restored to its great place. So we'll hear more about Inanna, but first... So we finally made it to the Pottery Neolithic, otherwise called the Late Neolithic or the Ceramic Neolithic. So all in all, we're looking at the period between about 7000 and 5300 BCE. Then we're going to have a look at Tel el-Kerk in Syria, and then we'll take a longer look at pottery itself, its chemical properties and how it's produced, its various predecessors and so on. So the late pre-pottery Neolithic B, or the second half of the 7000s BCE, is when farming is really established across the Near East. Before then, the majority of people were primarily reliant on wild resources. We focused on the exceptions because they're more relevant to the future. But just imagine that for most of the Near East before 7500 BCE or so, people were mostly living in small foraging communities and only marginally experimenting with various kinds of domestic crops. But starting around 7500 BCE, lots of new villages appeared in the north and east that is, in the foothills of the Zagros and the Taurus Mountains, on trade routes connecting the mountains and the lowlands. Among other things we see, they were trading obsidian blades, marble bracelets, and leaf-shaped arrowheads. 
So this is obviously right before pottery is invented, but they've already established a regional trade network that will become the basis for a later cultural exchange during the pottery Neolithic. I should clarify, when I say there was no pottery before 7,000 BCE, what I mean is there was almost none, especially outside Palestine. There are a few pottery shirts from the pre-pottery Neolithic B. I'll be ignoring them for today, but please check out Jane Gastra's podcast, the Prehistory Podcast, for more on that. So one thing we've touched on a couple times is what is called the Neolithic Demographic Transformation, which of course is when cereal agriculture results in rapid population growth. This happens in two stages. You know, in this first stage, as their methods for growing cereals become more efficient, the population grows in lockstep with that. But eventually you're going to reach the carrying capacity of your local area and you're going to exhaust a limit of your local resources, whether that means literally running out of space to plant your crops or sucking all of the nutrients out of the soil or erosion caused by water management techniques. When this happens, your existing production is not going to be enough to feed future population as it keeps growing. So when you hit this limit, you have a couple different options. You could expend labor preparing nearby land for more agriculture, or you can send out immigrants to start their own allied community. They exploit a different area's resources and you get to stay in the same place. Both of you get a free permanent ally and everyone wins. And if that fails, as we saw in the previous episode, you could attack a neighboring community and take their food or land. This is kind of a last resort if you are facing the choice between starving or risking your life fighting. The fewer mouths there are to feed in a region, the less strain there is on local resources. This combined with the climatic 8.2 kill year event in the late 6000s BCE may have resulted in the first fortifications in southwestern Anatolia. So throughout the Neolithic, we've looked at some large sites like Abu Huraira, which is 16 hectares, and Chatahuruk, which is about 13 hectares. Some other sites include Ain Ghazal in Jordan and Beysamun in Palestine, and we took a quick look at Domus Tepe in Anatolia. And today we're going to look at Tel El Kerk in northwestern Syria. So some of these sites range from 7 to 20 hectares. It's not clear that all this area was occupied at the same time, but still we're looking at very large communities. But one trend that we'll see as we move from the pre-pottery Neolithic into the pottery Neolithic is that the focus of production is going to move from the communal village into the household. So over time, a tight-knit village will turn into a broad network of spread out households that don't all live in the same place. So during the 6000s and early 5000s BCE, that is during the pottery Neolithic, most settlements are small, under one hectare, they're spread out and decentralized, and they don't tend to be inhabited for very long. Sometimes we see village clusters or settlements within 100 meters of each other. They're never more than one kilometer apart. That is, they're usually around a one-minute walk away and never more than 10 minutes away. And in addition to the foothills of the Taurus and the Zagros Mountains, where most of these pre-pottery Neolithic sites were, we also see the Syrian desert occupied for the first time since the Epipaleolithic. This occupation covers a large area, but it's made up of small settlements spread out. We also see regular abandonment. So like I said, sites are used and abandoned on and off for decades at a time. This may be when rivers change course or when they deplete their soil, or it may be a kind of large-scale fallow system where you leave land fallow for a couple decades and then come back to it. Or it may just be generational movement. You know, you get married and find an old house to rebuild. Your kids move out and start their own houses, and then eventually you die and your house is abandoned. We see no evidence of institutional leadership because these societies are too small to need it. So generally, you know, a couple of households are able to work out their issues on their own. And if anyone has a problem that can't be resolved, they're already in the habit of packing up and leaving. And because they're relying more on livestock, they're less reliant on any particular plot of farmland. So there are probably a few reasons for spreading out like this. They figured out intensive agriculture. So one household can grow all of its own crops, especially if they have a plow and cattle to pull it. Kids and elders who can't do intensive farm labor can take care of animals. I mentioned that it may be because they're hitting the natural carrying capacity of the farmlands they're living on. It may also be that once the population gets big enough and reaches a certain level of density, that requires the formation of new, more complex forms of governance that people might not want to be ruled by, in which case, again, they're already in the habit of getting up and leaving, so they may as well do that. This may also be because of disease. 
Last episode, we looked at genetic evidence that lots of diseases first appeared during the Neolithic. In large, dense towns like Chachahuyuk, we see the worst case scenario when it comes to communicable disease. And even if you don't understand modern epidemiology or exactly why people in large towns get sick, it's understandable that people would reach the conclusion that they don't want to live in large towns anymore. So at the same time, this Neolithic agriculture community unit was splintering. We see an increasing network of trade and cultural exchange pop up, and these are probably related to each other. So increasingly, instead of a household situated inside a small homogenous village, households are going to start to think of themselves as situated inside a broader region, connected by lots of different ties to lots of different households and communities. So the most likely system in this scenario, marriage-wise, is that the wife moves in with her husband's family. His family is going to compensate her family for the loss of work, that is the work that she could do for her parents' household, and that her potential children could do. Because of course, going forward, both her work and her children's work will benefit her husband's household. And this compensation usually takes the form of livestock and or high-value goods like jewelry. Either way, over time, this strengthens the patrilineal, patrilocal, and patriarchal household. It incentivizes maximizing livestock herds, so you're not just growing them for subsistence, or even for household production, like milk and wool and so on. Now you're growing as many animals as possible so that you can give some away as gifts when your kids marry someone else. So as before, they're growing cereals like wheat and barley, legumes like lentils, chickpeas, bitter vetch, cowpeas, and field peas. They're also growing flax for oil and linen. Their farmland is either dry farmed, that is, fed by rainwater, or seasonally inundated, like on riverbanks and wadis, or seasonal waterways. We'll see the first irrigation at Chogomami in east-central Iraq. We'll get there in episode 10. From the wild, they gathered fruits like figs, plums, and raspberries, and nuts like almonds and pistachios. And as far as animals, they had dogs. Their primary livestock were sheep and goats. They had some cattle and pigs, but far fewer. Cattle tend to be important in artwork, partially a holdover from the days when hunting wild bulls was a major source of prestige. It's unclear, as I said, if cattle were pulling plows yet. So often, instead of talking about the pottery Neolithic, Academics will talk about a particular culture, including the Hasuna, Samara, and Halaf cultures, all of which primarily describe styles of pottery. And in an archaeological sense, the word culture, or material culture, refers to a style of making physical objects, like tools, jewelry, pottery, buildings, and so on. These material cultures don't necessarily overlap with cultural groups, like clans or tribes, or people who share the same language or religion. So all of the people within the Halaf culture, for example, don't necessarily share all those things. They just share a style of making and decorating pots. So the traditional chronology goes Proto-Hasuna, Hasuna, Samara, Halaf, and then Ubayid. But both Hasuna and Samara are outgrowths of the Proto-Hasuna style, and the Samara culture develops into the Halaf and the Ubayid culture. It's also worth noting that these pottery styles don't correspond at all with other cultural boundaries. So for example, at Chogamami, the same types of local clay are used for different styles. They're prepared in different ways for different types of pottery, so they could be painted, incised, or left undecorated. We see local workshops making every kind of pottery, including Ubayid pottery. Halaf pottery is the most unique, but it's still made from local clay, all of which is evidence that different quote-unquote cultures are produced by the same exact people in the same exact warehouses. So, in a 2013 paper, Peter Ackermans wrote, quote, The beginning of the Halaf was neither a sudden event nor the result of the arrival of people from elsewhere, as long assumed, but the outcome of a lengthy, continuous process of local culture change in northeastern Syria and adjacent Iraq, end quote. So we're not talking about a single migration of a group of people from elsewhere. We're talking about gradual cultural change within the Near East. So we're going to take a look at Tel el-Kerk. So this is a pottery Neolithic megasite in northwestern Syria. We're about 20 kilometers southwest of modern Idlib. The site is made up of three separate settlement mounds, about 16 hectares in total. Confusingly, these three mounds are called Tel el-Kerk 1, Tel el-Kerk 2, and Tel Ein el-Kerk. So this region participated in lots of early pre-pottery Neolithic B trends. In the mid to late 8000s BCE, we see among the earliest evidence for chickpea cultivation here, that is, larger seeds than are common in the wild. 
The site was continuously occupied starting around 7600 BCE in the late pre-Pottery Neolithic B. This is when its population was highest. All of the mounds were apparently occupied during this period, and the site would be occupied until about 5800 BCE. Over time, though, the settlement area shrank from 8 hectares to 6 hectares until it was less than 1. Remember, the trend during the Pottery Neolithic is towards smaller, more modular sites. But aside from being big, it's also a great example of a lot of the other trends we've been following. In a 2011 paper, Akira Tsuneki listed, quote, communal storage, craft specialization, advanced technology, long-distance trade, concepts of ownership, ritual practices, and personal property, end quote. They built rectangular buildings with many small rooms, some of the rooms under one square meter, almost certainly used for storage. These buildings also include hearths and bread ovens, or tenures, and facilities for grinding grain. We also see early pottery, some of which is coated on the outside with lime plaster, which was used to make vessels on its own before clay. This is probably to make the clay pot stronger. So Tel Elkerk was both one of the last PPNB megasites and one of the first Pottery Neolithic modular sites. All over this region, people are switching from living in the same place forever to living there for a couple generations and then moving away. Maybe, eventually, they'll move back or their kids will move back or somewhere nearby. Find the ruins of an old house, build it up, and live there. It goes without saying that most of the people who lived in 16 hectares of contiguous town at the end of the PPNB probably moved somewhere else. In absolute terms, there were fewer people living here after 7000 BCE. During the early 6000s, or the very beginning of the Pottery Neolithic, people apparently moved to the Central Mound, which was 2 hectares, and then to the Northern Mound, which was 7 hectares, and then back to the Central Mound. Based on carbon dates, this period lasted between about 7000 and 6600 BCE, so people were probably moving their settlement every 80 to 100 years, or every 3 to 5 generations. Between about 6600 and 6100 BCE, the settlement area shrank to 6 hectares, and then during the last period, from 6100 to 5800, it shrank to less than 1 hectare, so so much for the megasite. So it's hard to figure out exactly what the population was, because as I said, people were constantly moving around within the settlement. Probably what happened is a new couple would get married, and they would need a new house. You know, they would move out of their parents' houses, maybe find the foundations of an old house, either nearby or in a place that their family had lived at some point in the last century. Then they would clean it out and fix it up, and eventually they would die. Sometimes they get buried underneath the house. Then their kids would move out, the house would fall into disrepair and fill up with trash and debris, become kind of a communal dumpster for everyone else in the region, until someone needed it in which case they would clean it out, fix it up, and so on, and the cycle would continue. So, at El Kerk, we see at least 280 burials from the Neolithic. During the pre-Pottery Neolithic B, these were mostly buried under or near houses. It's unclear if the houses were currently being used when people were buried under them. Under houses, most burials are infants. We see a few adolescents and adults. Burial practices here were apparently simpler than at many other Neolithic sites. We have no evidence of treating the skull any differently. Only 25% of burials contained grave goods, compared to 40% at Abu Huraira, and apart from two adolescents, only infants had grave goods. So, this pattern of overwhelmingly burying infants inside the settlement and burying most adults and adolescents elsewhere is rare in Syria Palestine, but more common elsewhere, for example in southwestern Iran. One burial is a square pit, 80 by 90 centimeters. There's an unborn infant in the southwestern corner, with an 11 centimeter long flint point on its chest. We have bones from an infant pig in the center of the square, and on top are a deer antler and a cattle shoulder blade. The tips of these bones are fixed into the base of the wall on the east side of this pit. So now, moving in time to the Pottery Neolithic. We see one massive cemetery here, with over 240 people buried. This is within an area of land that's only 200 square meters, so many people are buried on top of each other, and this dates from the second half of the 6000s BCE. So here, we have men, women, and children, mostly primary burials. That's when you bury them with no extra steps. We also have some secondary burials, which is when you take bones, especially skulls and long bones, and rebury them elsewhere. Some of these are individual, but most are in a collective reburial ground. These are mostly adults, but all ages and both sexes are represented. At least 37 people were cremated. Most of these are in four cremation pits. 
and the age and sex distribution of these is similar to those of the secondary burial pits. So cremation might be a kind of secondary burial. Akira Tsuneki wrote, quote, Considering the size of the pits, the number of individuals, and their disarticulation, it seems that the Karak people did not cremate dead bodies, but rather skeletons that had been disinterred from primary burials. Cremation became less common over time. Increasingly, primary inhumation was the main form of burial. Again, that's just when you bury the body and then leave it alone. This apparently reflects a shortening of the funeral process from the pre-Pottery Neolithic B to the Pottery Neolithic. So they're gradually moving away from skull stuff. And this may be because people are less tied to a particular area for more than three generations. So they wouldn't necessarily be transporting their ancestors' remains from site to site every time a new generation built a different house. Also, if the entire family isn't living in the same place, if you have 10 siblings and cousins, all of which live in different households, which one of you gets to keep your grandpa's skull? So essentially we see a shift to a new understanding of lineage that didn't have to involve access to the physical remains of ancestors. So to look at these people's skeletons, one man in his late 30s had a small hole drilled through his left temple this is an example of trepanation, and another hole drilled through his jaw. We know he died when these two bones were fractured, so this drilling may have been an attempt at medical care, or it may have been some kind of ritual after he was dead. His upper body was covered with lime plaster, and a big chunk of limestone was placed at his knees. We have another man in his early 30s. His bones showed several healed fractures in his left arm, his right hand, and his collarbone. So he was covered with wounds, but they were all healed by the time he died. So we know he was in some kind of fight, but that he survived for a while. We also see two adult women. One has two fractures in her left arm and one in her collarbone, and the other has fractures in her left arm and hand and at least six broken ribs. So all of this shows that there was at least some level of interpersonal violence. So looking at life expectancy, of 200 skeletons analyzed, almost half, about 47%, died under 20 years old. Of these, 27% died in their first year, and the majority died under age three. We also see lots of young women, which may be death related to childbirth. It's also notable that we don't see any adults over 50. Almost all adults are between 20 and 40, and very few lived past 45. Despite stereotypes about the deep past, this is not at all normal. Even if a lot of babies and mothers die, in most stable pre-modern societies, if you make it past your childbearing years, you're likely to live into your 50s or 60s. So about one in five skeletons at the cemetery had at least one hypoplastic enamel defect. These are places where the enamel doesn't grow on the tooth, and this could be evidence of chronic stress or illness during adolescence. So maybe malnutrition, maybe infection or parasites, you know, or ongoing trauma from violence or something like that. It's probably worth pointing out that the cemetery's period of use coincided with the 8.2 killer event, which brought colder, drier weather to the entire region, which would mean less food for everyone. This may help explain why the site shrank so much over this period. Over one-third of the primary burials contained grave goods, so mostly pottery or personal ornaments like beads or pendants. We also see stamp seals and bone tools. Stamp seals may already be tied to identity. We'll talk about that a lot. Graves of all ages and sexes had grave goods. Adult men tended to have more than women or children, and some grave goods are commonly associated with one sex or the other. So a man, about 40, had a small bowl behind his head. Near his lower back, we see a clay stamp seal, five deer horns, and lots of stone and bone tools. These were probably in a cloth bag, which decayed. It's unusual to be buried with so many stone tools, so maybe this guy in particular was a flint napper. Some adult women are buried with characteristic bone tools, so one woman is buried with a big cattle metacarpal, seven bone awls, and three stone beads. A 20-year-old woman is buried with a big metacarpal from an aurochs. So in humans, the metacarpal is in your foot, but in cows, it kind of looks like their shin bone. It's, you know, from their knee on down. So it's a long, thick, round bone. And based on modern ethnography, these animal metacarpals were probably used in looms to tighten cords. And bone awls were probably also used in weaving. So to the extent that we can detect a gender division of labor, it seems that women used looms to weave, and men used stone tools to make other stone tools. So I mentioned stamp seals. These are among the most important grave goods for later periods of history. As of 2011, 
Over 150 stamp seals and six seal impressions have been found at Tel El Kerk. As of 2012, these were the earliest known seal impressions in the Near East. And in the cemetery alone, we see 15 stamp seals from 11 graves. These seals are usually found in the person's hand or by their hips. They might have been originally strapped to their belt. One was found near the neck, along with four beads, so it was probably part of a necklace, and another was found in a pot dedicated to one of the cremation pits. Most people buried with stamp seals were adults of both sexes, but we also see two juveniles, including a small child. The seals themselves are mostly stone, some are made of bone or terracotta. One depicts a frog, others have patterns with cross-hatching or drilled dots. Stamp seals will become extremely important. They're part of the long prehistory of written language and bureaucratic record-keeping. Much, much more on that later. It's called the stamp seal because you seal something with clay. That is, you cover up the opening with a wad of clay, whether you're sealing up the mouth of a jar or a door or a basket or something like that. Then you stamp that clay with your stamp seal, which has a specific, unique engraved design that presses that design into the clay. So the design stamped into the clay is called a seal impression. This makes it impossible to open the jar or basket or whatever without breaking the seal impression. So essentially, if you want to open the container that the clay is sealing, you're going to have to deform the image that you've pressed into it. So when people come by and see that the image itself has been destroyed by someone opening the package, they will know that it was opened by someone who did not have the proper seal. The concept of incising designs into stones or amulets is at least as old as the pre-pottery Neolithic A in the 9000s BCE. From the pre-pottery Neolithic B onwards, we see stone stamp-shaped objects with geometric patterns, but it's unclear if they were actually used as stamps that early on. Later on in history, Government officials will carry seals as their way to quote-unquote sign official documents, so we'll see that seals will not be only a mark of identity, but also a record-keeping technique. To manage the resources of a household or a temple or a palace, these seals and their impressions are a major source of historical data, not least when we start to get writing on them in the early 2000s. During this period, though, seals apparently signified identity in smaller-scale contexts. So that kid with a stamp seal is unlikely to be in charge of managing the goods of an entire household, so it could have just functioned as a way to identify an individual. It might also have some kind of symbolic, social, or ritual importance. We're going to keep talking about this, so stay tuned. So to conclude, in 2011, Akira Tsuneki wrote, quote, Pre-pottery Neolithic people confronted problems of high infant mortality rates and poor maternal health and were comparatively short-lived. Interpersonal violence, especially among males, and poor prenatal conditions for pregnant females might be among the reason for such a short life expectancy. At the same time, however, they held funeral services even for small children and badly injured people, taking great care with the funeral arrangements, indicating a deep feeling of affection for their families and colleagues, end quote. To take a look at feasting, in the 6000s BCE, we see two separate cultural areas in the northwest. One included Cilicia, which is a kind of area of south-central Anatolia, and the other included northern Syria and Lebanon. The second region includes Tel el Kerk. So these two regions had different material cultures, but they had the same kinds of bowls and goblets in both regions. This style is called fine-paste, dark-faced ware. So we have a shared style of fine tableware, which may be evidence that both cultures attended the same feasts and wanted to impress each other using the same styles of fine pottery. In a 2012 article, Francesca Rostelli wrote, quote, Social relations and solidarity were reinforced through shared food consumption, end quote. In contrast, cooking pots vary by region. They are generally less decorated with a more simple design, which may show that cooking is less symbolically important than eating, because your dinner guests might not see the pottery that you cook in the kitchen with, but they definitely will see the pottery that you serve the food on at the dinner table. So I've talked about the 8.2 kilier event, so across southwestern Asia and beyond, during the late 6000s BCE, peaking around 6200, or 8.2 thousand years ago, the mean temperature dropped between 2 and 3 degrees Celsius, or about 5 degrees Fahrenheit. This was part of a worldwide cooling event lasting centuries that we call the 8.2 kilier event. This led to more pronounced extremes, especially in winter. We see evidence of frequent sustained frost, as well as heavier snow and rain in the mountains, leading to more flooding, along with unexpected dry periods, depending on where you were. 
So this is the nature of climate change. It's not just a unidirectional shift in temperatures, but we see wider swings. A different climate changes the feedback loops everywhere, leading to unpredictable conditions. All of this would wreak havoc on farming and herding, so failed crops would lead to food shortages, and you would have no guarantee of finding food if you pick up stakes and move. It's risky to travel with malnourished old and young people, so this may account for all of the death that we see at El Kerk, and it may account for the dissolution of these kind of small egalitarian villages, and it probably also accounts for, as I talked about last episode, violence in southwestern Anatolia. So in this region, in the late 6000s BCE, people lived in rectangular multi-room houses with bread ovens and hearths. They seem to have done all their cooking inside, and each family or household prepared us on food. But by the early 5000s, we see a shift to a more nomadic lifestyle. We see fewer cattle and pigs, and more sheep and goats, which are more mobile. People leading this more mobile lifestyle would spend more time interacting with strangers, so they would have more frequent opportunities to build alliances, and because of the harsher climate, those alliances would be more important. So ideally, you know, if you want the system to be sustainable, everyone should build alliances the same way, which may account for the kind of unified culture of feasting that we see. So around the same time, we see the first painted pottery in the region. The symbolism may be a way to communicate across distance or a language barrier. So a feast would be a venue for exchanging culture, like stories, art, and marriages, and so on. As before, pottery is a shared medium of exchange between culture. Literally, it's what they use to share their food, but also symbolically, the decorations on pottery can communicate cultural and aesthetic values. Also, pottery can be a means for communicating and differentiating social distinctions. Over time, we see more and more types of fine pottery, which of course means they're labor-intensive, and to the extent that they're produced in a single place instead of being a single style that many different households copy on their own, you know, connections to the place that makes this kind of fine pottery would be a sign to your dinner guest that you are an important person with wide-ranging social connections. We see pottery for making beer, which was fermented in big pots and then poured into jars with strainers in the spout. These strainers may be for sifting out the floating barley grains, resulting in a beer that is purely liquid with no chunks in it. And the serving containers that the beer would be poured into are this kind of fine paste ware. So we see some ritual pits at Tel El Kerk, which are filled with ash and then intentionally broken pottery carefully laid in the pits. Some of this pottery includes the strainer jars for beer and some other pottery for drinking. All of the pottery here appears to be for drinking, not eating. And the small amount of fine ware here indicates that the entire community did not participate in these dinners, which might be evidence of restricted access to resources. It's also notable that these cups were intentionally broken, so it may be that at the end of a particularly important feast or ritual or celebration, and maybe to mark someone's death, you would break the cups and bury them. But either way, the end of an object's use life is likely to coincide with some other event. So speaking of pottery, now that they've invented ceramics, let's take a closer look at what exactly that entails. So pottery refers to containers made of fired clay. Clay is a naturally occurring type of soil. Firing is the process of heating it in a kiln. This triggers a series of chemical reactions which we'll talk about. The resulting ceramic material is waterproof and fireproof, and it can literally last forever if you don't break it. And of course, because it survives for so long, and because pottery is inherently fragile, you know, it's likely to shatter if you drop it. And of course, when it's being heated and cooled and moved around constantly, it's likely to get broken, which accounts for the massive amount of shards of broken pottery, also called pot shards, available to archaeologists. So pottery is obviously a massive topic in archaeology. This will only be a brief overview. So clay is a specific type of fine-grained soil. It includes aluminum and silicon oxides and dioxides. The molecules are held together by hydrogen bonds, which makes it cohesive but still flexible, so that it can still be molded by human hands. The most common use of unbaked clay is for bricks. Walls made of unbaked clay bricks can absorb shocks like small earthquakes. It's possible to build these kind of mud brick walls with simple tools. So a common design that we see across the Near East, well before the Pottery Neolithic, is a house with walls of unbaked clay and a roof made of reeds, sometimes covered with mud. So I've mentioned before that when we see the first pottery in the early 6000s BCE, 
That is not the first fired clay in the region. The oldest known fired clay object dates back to about 30,000 years ago. The oldest known fired pottery dates back to 16,000 BCE in China. Closer to home, pottery was invented in the late 9,000s BCE in northeastern Africa. So Egypt has over 2,000 years on Mesopotamia here. I should clarify, there is actually some pottery in Palestine during the so-called pre-pottery Neolithic B at sites like Ain Ghazal and Kafar HaHorash. Maybe because of contact with Egypt, it's not impossible to imagine Egyptian sailors sailing up the coast and explaining how to build the pottery kiln and so on. They may have also discovered it independently from Egypt. They almost certainly discovered it independently from Eastern Asia. And once they had developed it in, like I said, northern Syria and northern Iraq, it spread quickly across the Fertile Crescent and beyond. So you need four things for pottery. Earth, water, fire, and time. People in the Stone Age had no shortage of these, so it shouldn't surprise us that people came up with different combinations of these elements. For example, we see bins built into buildings. At Chayernu, we see large containers of unfired clay. At the same site, we see a skull building with 500 people's skulls. In this building, we see a shallow plate with a ring base painted with red ochre that had been deliberately broken and placed upside down on the floor. This may be a closing deposit, that is, for ending the use life of the skull building. Maybe it would symbolize the death of a building concerned with the death of people by killing an object that represents humanity in some way. At the Domus Tepe death pit, we saw some evidence that they may have already correlated mud and clay with human life and flesh. This may be another example of that. So obviously, before they're making pottery, one thing we had to work with was stone. So stone vessels are common during the pre-pottery Neolithic. In the PPNA, we see simple, shallow, open bowls without decoration or stylistic variation. Sometimes in these bowls, we see evidence of grinding, like processing grain. During the PPNB, we see more diversity in shapes and styles. For the first time, plates become the most common type, as opposed to bowls. These are mostly limestone, some are basalt, and they're not generally decorated. We do see decorated stone bowls at Halan Chemi, which we looked at in episode 3. These include relief designs of humans and animals. We also see decorated bowls at Sabi Abyad, which we'll visit next episode. But stone bowls are totally different from pottery. You cannot cook with them. Their formation is reductive, not additive. That is, you start with a larger object and then remove parts of it until you end up with a stone bowl. And there's no equivalent of the firing process. But stone bowls are used in similar ways for preparing and serving food. And they may have had similar cultural context to what we'll see for pottery later on. So to take a look at whiteware, plaster is a common material in the Neolithic. It's used to plaster floors, walls, and hearths. And of course, plaster skulls like we saw at Jericho. White ware is a term referring to pots made of limestone plaster. So in order to do this, you have to heat limestone to 800 to 900 degrees Celsius and mix it with water, which results in a paste-like clay. This is also sometimes tempered with vegetal matter. The main problem with white ware is that it's highly permeable. So these pots will absorb water and they're also fairly fragile. Both of these make them useless for cooking. So white ware was probably used to store dry goods like grain. But this is an important step towards pottery. They have a similar production process. The molding and modeling techniques are similar but we see there's a reason they would eventually switch to making clay pots. So to look at figurines, the oldest known fired clay object we see is around 30,000 years old. This is a female figurine called the Venus of Dolni Vestonice from the modern Czech Republic. During the early PPNB, we see fired clay figurines at Navali Chori. So this is in the late 8,000s BCE, part of the same culture as Gebekli Tepe. These are fired at 600 degrees Celsius or over 1,100 degrees Fahrenheit. And clay figurines will become more common during the PPNB. Popular images depicted by these figurines include a woman with her hands on her breasts or belly, which may be a fertility symbol. We see an adult holding a child, women that may be pregnant, and we see a seated woman flanked by animals. We also have clay models of houses that depict floors, doorways, and walls, as well as a roof and parapets on the roof. These often give us our best chance for understanding what the entire house would have looked like instead of just a floor plan. Let's take a look at the process of making a pot. So feldspars are aluminum silicates. They often incorporate alkaline earth metals, and they make up about 60% of the Earth's crust. 
So when it rains, the rain reacts with carbon dioxide in the air to create a certain amount of carbonic acid in the rain. Over eons of geological time, rain dissolves alkaline earth metal oxides and isolates silicon and aluminum oxides. So there's lots of clay in various rock formations that eventually gets washed down river, where it'll gather in places like the southern Mesopotamian alluvial plain, which we'll look at eventually. When these particles are transported by water, they get ground down into even finer particles. Of course, larger particles will sink and smaller particles will keep getting carried by the river current, so they'll end up at different places. And as a result, clay is a component of soils all over the world, but in places where you have a lot of river stuff happening, you'll have a whole lot of very fine particles of clay. So we don't have any pottery wheels yet. Those won't be invented until the mid-Ubayid period, around 5000 BCE. So all pots have to be formed by hand. And clay needs the right amount of water mixed in. If you don't have enough water, it's too hard to be formed by hand. And if you have too much water, it becomes too runny to hold its shape. Clay has water molecules or hydrates built into its chemical structure, as well as whatever water the potter adds to it to form it. When you're done forming the pot, you let it air dry. This allows water molecules to evaporate from between the sheets of clay molecules so that the sheets become hydrogen bonded to each other. This causes the volume of the pot to shrink by about 5%. To quote my friend Sheila, who we'll meet in episode 21, quote, hydrogen bonding is not quite a chemical bond, but a strong interaction between a hydrogen atom and a nearby electronegative atom, in this case, oxygen within the clay structure. It's a very strong interaction, but not quite as strong as a chemical bond. Hydrogen bonds are very important in nature. They're the reason why water is liquid, why ice floats, and how our DNA is stranded together, end quote. So this is greenware. In other words, unfired, air-dried pottery. You can use it to store dry goods, but at this point you can also dissolve it in water and it'll turn back into clay. So it's not unlike whiteware in that respect. But of course, if you want to use it to cook or store liquids or anything, you're going to want to fire the pot, that is to put it in a kiln or a pottery oven, which will create a chemical reaction that will result in pottery. So the first stage of the firing process is evaporation, which is when you heat the pot below boiling temperature. This allows ambient water to escape you can't heat it too fast or it might crack or explode. The next phase is dehydroxylation, which is when you remove the hydroxyls bonded to aluminum and silicon compounds. This is an actual chemical reaction as opposed to just evaporation while air drying. Sheila again, quote, dehydroxylation is not technically removal of water from the clay hydrate, but the product of a dehydroxylation ends up being water. That's actually how these oxygen bridges form. You could imagine two silicon hydroxides, chemical formula, silicon, oxygen, hydrogen, hanging out, and one of them steals the other's hydrogen and H2O jumps off. Now there's one silicon that needs something negative to bond to, and one oxygen on the other silicon that needs something positive to bond to. So they decide to link up, and now you have a silicon-oxygen-silicon setup, and that's your oxygen bridge. These are actual chemical bonds which are stronger than hydrogen bonds. That's the dehydroxylation, baby, end quote. And as a result of this dehydroxylation, now the sheets are bonded by oxygen bridges, which are stronger and shorter than hydrogen bonds. This process is complete once the kiln reaches about 550 degrees Celsius, or about 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. At this point, the process can't be reversed, and the clay is no longer pliable. So this is kind of the bare minimum for making pottery instead of just air-dried clay. At 573 degrees Celsius, the crystalline quartz, or silica, increases in volume. You can't heat it too fast or it'll crack. Between 700 and 900 degrees Celsius, the organic material in clay is burned and oxidized into carbon dioxide, and the fluorine and sulfur dioxide also sublimate away. What you have now is called biscuit pottery, where the clay particles are sintered or welded together, the pot at this point is still durable enough to be handled and glazed, but it's also still porous enough to absorb water. So you can think of the kind of cheap pot that you would buy at a home goods store for gardening. You know, it will absorb water, but the water is not going to cause it to dissolve and turn back into clay. If you're making modern pottery, this is a good time to glaze the pot if you haven't already, but we don't have any glazing yet. That'll be discovered around 5000 BCE in Egypt. So let's assume they've kept the pot in the kiln this whole time. 
Above 900 degrees Celsius, the silica starts to melt and fill the spaces between the clay particles. This fuses them together, and the volume of the clay itself starts to shrink. At 1000 degrees Celsius, over 800 Fahrenheit, clay crystals themselves start to break down and melt. This is about as hot as kilns could get at this point. Beyond this point, additional chemical changes make the pottery stronger and harder, but you can cook just fine in a pot fired around 1000 degrees Celsius. This kind of pottery is called earthenware, as opposed to stoneware or porcelain, which is fired at higher temperatures. Earthenware still has some water molecules, which is why if you fill a cheap mug with water and then put it in the microwave, the handle will come out hot because the microwave is also heating the water in the body of the clay as well as in the mug itself. So try to imagine cooking soup without pottery or metal. You could waterproof a basket with bitumen, but if you heat up bitumen, it turns into tar and you don't want tar in your food. You could weave a waterproof basket, but you can't put it over a fire or it'll burn. As we've seen, they may do with stone bowls and hot rocks where you put liquid in the stone bowl, you heat a rock in the fire, and then you drop the hot rock into the stone bowl. But now with pottery, you can cook meat in its own juices instead of cooking it on a spit and letting it drip into the fire. Now you can cook vegetables, whereas previously you had to serve them raw or barbecued. You can let soup simmer for hours with herbs and various juices and so on. The most important thing about pottery is that it's waterproof. Sometimes porous enough to absorb some liquid, but water can't seep through from one side to the other. The other most important thing is that it's fireproof. In other words, you can use it to cook without it burning or cracking. So porridge is grain cooked in liquid until it's soft. So this reduces the need to grind it into flour because you can just cook the grains themselves until they're soft. So it cuts down on wear and tear on teeth, especially if people are sieving out their flour to remove the gravel. But these softer sugars are easier to digest, both for you and for the bacteria that live in your mouth, which causes more tooth decay. So it's kind of a wash. People were brewing beer in stone containers before pottery, as we saw at Gebekli Tepe. But pottery makes that whole process much less labor-intensive, so with low-alcohol beer, this makes more calories available to them, and of course, it means you can get drunk. So as I mentioned, pottery doesn't degrade over time, unlike baskets and leather bags. So it's a perfect material for long-term storage. And of course, because it's water and fireproof, dry grain stored in pottery has a lower chance of going bad. Most importantly, pottery is much less labor-intensive than baskets, which take forever to weave, or stone containers, which take much longer to chip and grind. There's basically infinite clay if you are near a source of fresh water, which you are, and it doesn't take long to make a pot. So for the first time, people have access to long-term storage on an arbitrarily large scale. Also, pottery makes it easier to process dairy to break down lactose, which makes it possible for people to eat dairy products before the genes for lactase persistence spread. So this makes cheese, yogurt, and butter all much easier to produce. And of course, this is when most people in the region have access to livestock. So one-third of modern adults can digest milk, this ability is called lactase persistence, because lactase, the enzyme that allows babies to digest milk, persists into adulthood. This is most common in Northern Europe, but it's also common in the Middle East, Africa, and parts of Asia. The European and Middle Eastern gene for lactase persistence also allows humans to process florazin, which appears in the roots and bark of apple, pear, and cherry trees. The nutritious value of milk for adults has been vastly overhyped by the American dairy lobby, but milk would have been an important source of nutrition for Neolithic farmers, providing them with water, sugar, lipids, proteins, and minerals. So lactose is the sugar in milk. It's about 5% of milk by weight. It helps the body absorb calcium, magnesium, and phosphate, and to process vitamin D more efficiently. Animal milk has more protein and less lactose than human milk. Because of its low iron content, it's not healthy for infants under 12 months. But after that point, animal milk, combined with grains or legumes, legumes, make it a common weaning food, and it may have been used as baby food during the Neolithic. Modern studies show that more dairy leads to better health and development in children over 12 months old, and there are ways to process milk to reduce the lactose content. You can allow the milk to curdle and then separate the curds from the lactose-rich whey. Cheeses like cheddar, camembert, and roquefort only have traces of lactose. 
and in yogurt, the lactose ferments into lactic acid, and butter and Parmesan cheese are less than 1% lactose by weight. So in other words, the first pottery allows people to cook in a container for the first time. So they have lots of ways of processing milk to cut down on the lactose and make it digestible to people that do not have lactase persistence. Mass spectrometry analysis of pottery shards is able to identify lipids trapped in the clay pores, which shows us that Neolithic people used their clay pots to cook with animal fats, plant waxes, beeswax, and various resins and tars. By 6500 BCE in Western Anatolia and the Balkans, over 70% of pottery shards came from vessels used to process milk. There is only one gene for lactase persistence common among Europeans. This is the same gene that is common in the Near East. So probably what happened is animal domestication spread from Anatolia through the Balkans into the rest of Europe. It's too common in Europe to have occurred and spread naturally. So we can probably point to social or political factors in its rapid spread. Maybe immigrants from the Near East had already had this gene married into families and passed on that gene. Or maybe Near Eastern immigrants in Europe were better suited to survive famines. We do see major migrations into Europe around the 8.2 Killier event, and it's likely that dairy would be a valuable source of nutrition if agriculture were no longer reliable in the face of climate instability. As opposed to this one gene in the Near Eastern Europe, there are five separate genes for lactase persistence in Africa. This is definitely evidence that cattle domestication spread into Africa, and it may be evidence for independent domestication events, or at the very least, that cattle herding was adopted so widely in Africa that other genes that happened to allow people to process lactose became common in African populations for the same reason that this other gene did in Europe. So, lactose helps the body process vitamin D, which helps with pregnancy, bone strength, and the immune system. It helps protect against cancer and multiple sclerosis. It helps assimilate calcium during digestion, and it also helps protect against rickets or stunted bone growth. Of course, one reason why this gene is so common in Northern Europe is because there's so little solar radiation in Northern Europe. You can get vitamin D from fish, you can get it from your diet, or you can get it from the sun. But if you live too far north to get it from the sun, you would better find a way to get it from your diet. So that was introduction to the pottery Neolithic. More to come. From the great above, she opened her ear to the great below. From the great above, the goddess opened her ear to the great below. From the great above, Inanna opened her ear to the great below. My lady abandoned heaven and earth to descend to the underworld. She abandoned her office of holy priestess to descend to the underworld. We are reading Inanna's Descent to the Netherworld. Same translation as before by Wolksine and Kramer. And now she's going to go see her sister who got knocked up in the underworld. Yeah, we see her giving birth in this one. Ooh, okay. So here we get a list of the temples that Inanna's abandoning to visit hell. In other words, it's a list of prominent temples to Inanna. We start with her hometown of Unug, and then move to Bad Tibera, Zabalam, Adab, Nippur, Kish, and Agade, or Akkad. So it's more or less a trip going upriver. She gathered together the seven May. She took them into her hands. With the May in her possession, she prepared herself. So essentially, she puts, you know, she puts a crown on her head. She arranges her hair. She, like, there's seven steps of, you know, dolling herself up, essentially. Mm-hmm. To go down to the underworld, including makeup called Let Him Come, Let Him Come. Like your boutique in whatever century this is. Right. Having like trendy little names for all of the equipment that they sell. True. And a breastplate called Come Man Come. Wow. Wow. Okay. Is there any... Allure. Any... Which version of Come is this, please? Uh, I think I think it's literally uh, Approach Me. Okay. All right. It still yeah, like could be pretty. Hitter. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> I could still see this being pretty yep. suggestive. Well, she is the goddess of sex. Good. Living her best life. She placed the Shugura, the crown of the step, on her head. She arranged the dark locks of hair across her forehead. She tied the small lapis beads around her neck, let the double strand of beads fall to her breast, and wrapped the royal robe around her body. She daubed her eyes with ointment called, Let him come, let him come. 
bound the breastplate, called Come, Man, Come, around her chest, slipped the gold ring over her wrist, and took the lapis measuring rod and line in her hand, Inanna set out for the underworld. Ninshubur, her faithful servant, went with her. Inanna spoke to her, saying, Ninshubur, my constant support, my Sukal, who gives me wise advice, my warrior who fights by my side, I am descending to the Kur, to the underworld. If I do not return, set up a lament for me by the ruins. Beat the drum for me in the assembly places. Circle the houses of the gods. Tear at your eyes, at your mouth, at your thighs. Dress yourself in a single garment like a beggar. Go to Nippur, to the temple of Enlil. When you enter his holy shrine, cry out, O father Enlil, do not let your daughter be put to death in the underworld. Do not let your bright silver be covered with the dust of the underworld. Do not let your precious lapis be broken into stone for the stoneworker. Do not let your fragrant boxwood be cut into wood for the woodworker. Do not let the holy priestess of heaven be put to death in the underworld. If Enlil will not help you, go to Ur, to the temple of Nana. Weep before Father Nana. If Nana will not help you, go to Eridu, to the temple of Enki. Weep before Father Enki. Father Enki, the god of wisdom, knows the food of life. He knows the water of life. He knows the secrets. Surely he will not let me die. The kind of mourning rituals that she tells Ninshubur to carry out if she dies mm. are kind of like, you know, universal in the ancient Near East and in the Bible and in, you know, Greek and Roman society. You know, you wear rags, you cover yourself with ashes, you tear your clothes and, you know, you scream. It's kind of uh, universal. Nice. That's interesting. Inanna continued on her way to the underworld. Then she stopped and said, Go now, Ninshubur. Do not forget the words I have commanded you. When Inanna arrived at the outer gates of the underworld, she knocked loudly. She cried out in a fierce voice. Open the door, gatekeeper. Open the door, Nedi. I alone would enter. So Nedi is the same god as Nedu from the Nergal myth. He's the gatekeeper of Kur, the Mesopotamian underworld, which is ruled by Eresh Kigal, Inanna's sister. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, why did she just call out her sister be like, open up, bitch? <laughs> Nedi, the chief gatekeeper of the Kur, asked, Who are you? She answered, I am Inanna. Queen of Heaven, on my way to the east. Netty said, If you are truly Inanna, Queen of Heaven, on your way to the east, why has your heart led you on the road from which no traveler returns? Inanna answered, Because of my older sister, Ereshkigal. Her husband, Gugalana, the Bull of Heaven, has died. I have come to witness the funeral rites. Let the beer of his funeral rites be poured into the cup. Let it be done. Hmm. Wait, but she's the one who got knocked up. But she had a husband? Well, yeah. She had a bull. Maybe a different husband. Who knows? Hmm. This story was written way earlier than the other one, so. Okay. Is she lying? Is she a lying hoe? Well, actually, it's not clear in this story if the bull of heaven has actually died. Given that we have a different story where Gilgamesh kills the bull of heaven. Right. The, you know, this may take place chronologically after that. Okay. I didn't have that context, so it seemed like she was just like, um, there's a car on fire outside. You'd better go see to it. <laughs> But also what she says, I am on my way to the East, like the idea of conflating the underworld with the East is interesting because, like I said, one of the names for the underworld is Kur, which is the Sumerian word for mountain. And to the East of Sumer were the Zagros Mountains in Iran. So in their kind of worldview, they had an idea of Kalam, which is like the civilized you know, farmland and Kur, the mountains, you know, the land of barbarians and, you know, the enemy land. Also the underworld, evidently. <laughs> also hell, yeah. Hell, yeah. Ah, mountainous hell. So Nettie spoke. Stay here, Inanna. I will speak to my queen. I will give you her message. Nettie, the chief gatekeeper of the Kur, 
entered the palace of Eresh Kigal, the queen of the underworld, and said, My queen, a maid as tall as heaven, as wide as the earth, as strong as the foundations of the city wall, waits outside the palace gates. She has gathered together the seven bay. She has taken them into her hands. I mean, my guess is she's not a maid, though. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. In the story, she does have a son, Shara. I mean, virginity is a construct, but you know, just just saying, like, she's the god of sex. Yes. I mean, yes. <laughs> and this one takes place after her marriage, so so she's not a virgin, but she is the goddess of young maidens. That's fun to be the goddess of, like, people who have not have had sex, and then also to be the god of the thing that makes them exactly not that thing. She's like, I can give it to you, and I can take it away from you as well. <laughs> <laughs> so Nettie repeats Inanna's earlier preparations, the crown, the beads, the makeup, and so on. When Eresh Kigal heard this, she slapped her thigh and bit her lip. She took the matter into her heart and dwelt on it. Then she spoke. Come, Nettie, my chief gatekeeper of the Kerr, heed my words. Bolt the seven gates of the underworld. Then one by one, open each gate a crack. Let Inanna enter. As she enters, remove her royal garments. Let the holy priestess of heaven enter, bowed low. But essentially she says, you know, every time she goes through one of the gates, make her take off one article of clothing. Oh, oh, she's going to be naked by the end of this one. <laughs> yep. Nettie heeded the words of his queen. He bolted the seven gates of the underworld. Then he opened the outer gate. He said to the maid, Come, Inanna, enter. When she entered the first gate, the shugura, the crown of her step, was removed from her head. Inanna asked, What is this? She was told, Quiet, Inanna. The ways of the underworld are perfect. They may not be questioned. <laughs> Shut the f*** up, we're perfect. <laughs> Definitely what I say to all my guests after I Take off force them to strip. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's like, I feel like she wore all of her jewelry to prepare for that, but there just still happened to be that many gates that she yeah. didn't have enough. Going to the strip poker game wearing like 45 layers of clothing. And Got still like, losing. Yeah. And my snow pants yeah. on, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When she passes through the seventh gate, Nettie takes off her robe and says, Quiet, Inanna. The ways of the underworld are perfect. They may not be questioned. Hmm, <laughs> interesting. Naked and bowed low, Inanna entered the throne room. Eresh Kigal rose from her throne. Inanna started toward the throne. The Anuna, the judges of the underworld, surrounded her. They passed judgment against her. Then Eresh Kigal fastened on Inanna the eye of death. She spoke against her the word of wrath. She uttered against her the cry of guilt. She struck her. What? Wait, is this the yeah. end of our girl? It's the end of part one. Does she have a problem with her sister? I don't know. I'm starting to sense that there's tension. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe they just they just do that. They're just playing. Like, that's well, just I mean, how they are. Given that apparently gods can be revived from death without any problem. Without, I sense well, maybe a little bit of a problem. Yeah, there are some problems. Just because you can be put back together doesn't mean that you want to be torn apart in the first place. That is a fair point. Inanna was turned into a corpse, a piece of rotting meat, and was hung from a hook on the wall. Jesus. That's gross. That's icky. She's icky now. She used to be sexy. That's true. <laughs> I'm having so many feelings. So it's looking pretty bad for Inanna, and we'll continue her story in the next episode. Mm-hmm.